morning to everybody. We're going to be continuing this morning in our, in our AMA series, or Ask Me Anything. And um, as you know, John runs this, so he takes, I don't know if I can use the word perverse in the church, but he takes a lot of pleasure out of giving Rich and I the topics he doesn't want to handle. <laughs> um, so this morning, we're going to be talking about how should Christians approach dating, what's appropriate for a couple pre-marriage, and then how do we maintain and reconcile sexual purity and the purity culture. So just for those of you that, that are online, um, we are going to be talking about sexual purity and, and marriage. So if you have small children that you're not ready to explain what that word means yet, <laughs> this is your fair warning. It's, it's going to be PG-13, but I can already think of my wife at home with our four kids and... Um, Hopefully she's got them all answered before I come back. <laughs> so, But yeah, so all three questions are kind of related to one another. Um, but if you're, you're married and thinking that nothing in today is going to apply to you, well, hang tight. Um, because after we get through the first you know, dating question, we're, we're really going to talk about how our conduct, sexual purity, and holiness do overflow into marriage and, and all of our lives. So let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you uh, for this morning. We just thank you that we, we live in a country where we can gather. Lord, we thank you that we have a church where you come and you're with us. Lord, that, that you're just a God that you never leave us alone. You never abandon us, Lord, but you come and you speak to us each and every day. And so, Lord, we just pray that today you would speak your words into everyone's hearts, Lord, that, that through my words up here, Lord, that, that your words would be, would be placed upon them. Mm -hmm. And so, Lord, we just commit this time to you. We, we set our hearts upon you, Lord. We put you as the priority in our lives. And, um, yeah, we just listen with anticipation for the things that you want to say to us. Amen. All right. So, how should Christians approach dating? Well, first thing i got to admit is this is kind of a weird topic for me to talk about. Um, I haven't dated in over 14 years, <laughs> um, with the exception of a couple daddy dates along the way. Um, I got married quite young, and, you know, now I don't want to say I've been married a long time. I've been married the right amount of time. But it is interesting, having gotten married young and been married for a few years, um, that I often get asked questions about marriage. And over the years, have had many people come up and they just kind of start telling me their relationship status, and then they ask for advice on what they should do. Break up, continue, propose. I mean, there's infinite situations. Um, the first question I always ask is, why me? Uh, <laughs> but the second question is, what is your goal? What are you trying to achieve in this relationship? And sometimes they don't have an answer. They haven't really thought about it. But other times they might start to answer around companionship, friendship, love. But eventually when you start prompting people, they, they get to the topic of marriage. And that's really the correct goal for us to start. Because marriage is what God had in mind when he created a companion for Adam. So in Genesis 2, we find Adam, and he's lonely. He's 
doing his work in the garden, but something is missing. A companion, a friend, a lover, a wife. So in Genesis 2, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. A little bit further back, we see that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, we're going to note two things in these verses. So one, we were created male and female, different, yet each reflecting God's image. And two, it was God that noticed Adam's loneliness and arranged for Eve. So how many of us, like Adam, can say that God created our wife perfectly for us? Guys, that was a trick question. You should have said yes to that. <laughs> Just so you know, that was completely a trick. The answer was yes, me. <laughs> because if we believe that God is sovereign and Lord and creator of earth and mankind, then yes, our wives were created just for us. Those irritating quirks and all. <laughs> so maybe your partner did not as peerage dramatically as from a rib from your side. But also it could have been more miraculous. We all have our stories of how God brought us together and the pieces that sometimes, even only in hindsight, we realize it sometimes seems like a fluke. But it's not. But the reality is, is that God brings us together and he unites us. And unite is really the right word there because that's what God does when we come together in marriage. In Matthew 19, Jesus said, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. So in marriage, the couple combines these two synergetic images of God, and it makes us a more holy, holistic picture of what God is like. And this is why marriage is so serious to God, and why he created such blessings to come upon those that commit and engage in its practice. So, if we consider dating to be the avenue to finding love, then marriage, what defines dating? So, the dictionary defines it as a social engagement between two people that sometimes has a romantic character. Now, to me, this sounds like the first couple meetings between two people but it falls short of describing what we as Christians are looking for. And so I'm going to suggest that when we're looking at how we approach dating, we actually look at a different word, the definition of which is to seek the affections of, especially to seek and to win a pledge of marriage from. And this is the definition of that archaic word courting. <laughs> now, I'm not going to suggest that we need to change our, our use of the word dating to courting. That would actually be far too easy. What I'm suggesting is that we need to, in our hearts, be intentional about what is the goal for us when we engage with another's emotions and be intentional about what we're seeking. For there's nothing casual about our emotions, 
and the tangled webs that they weave when we start to experience life with somebody. We see this happen when even friends are, are t- together, but this attachment gets even stronger once there are romantic feelings. As Christians, we are called to the higher calling, not the easy one. We're called to the narrow path, not the one the world will understand, but one that sets us on a path for blessing and being holy before God. So if you're dating, you need to ask, what is your intention? Now, I'm not asking that as soon as you start dating, you need to know if you're going to marry the person or not. That, that would be a little crazy. But I am asking that as soon as you know that getting married is not an option, that you exit. Because I know far too many Christians that are hanging around in relationships with all sorts of red flags and issues, but they're unwilling to go through the pain of breakup and separating their emotions. They know the end result's not there, but they're still hanging around. And this is why I would suggest that we be very selective in dating. And by this I mean not the casual part, the serious part. Because we also are supposed to be selective about the friends that we have. We need to be around people that build up our faith and don't lead us into bad situations. Now I know from many conversations with friends that dating these days can feel like a lottery. And it means that you have to have many losing tickets before you find the winner. (laughs) However, (laughs) believing that dating is a lottery greatly diminishes the role that the Holy Spirit can and wants to play in guiding you. And this is part of our higher calling, to show our faith and to trust him in all aspects of our lives. Many times we are like Samuel. We go to choose the king from among the sons of Jesse, and we get focused on looking with our human nature and forget that God sees things differently and has given us a helper. Also, like that same situation, you may see many options, but you may need to ask, is there another, and wait for the right one to enter. The Holy Spirit is constantly trying to tell us things if we'll take the time to listen, and I know that God doesn't ask every person to marry, but those that he does, he desires and will create the perfect partner, and he will guide us to them. All right, question number two. This is the really fun one. What is appropriate for a couple pre-marriage? So rather than let's talk about a couple, we're actually going to talk about the individuals, because if they're not yet married, then that is still how they are seen in the sight of God. So how are we all individually to act appropriate pre-marriage? Well, the Bible says a couple strong statements on this. First Thessalonians, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. 1 Corinthians also says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
Now notice Paul doesn't actually put any precursors or limits around these verses. They are not directed specifically at those pre-marriage, the young, the single, the old, females, males. They're directed at you. If you can read these verses, then they apply. So to the question at hand about pre-marriage couples, there are some clear physical lines that a pre-marriage couple should not cross. But there are also emotional and spiritual lines that should not be crossed either. The Bible is clear that before marriage, a couple should not be engaged in sexual activity or even sexually adjacent activities. It is also clear from our earlier birth in Matthew 19 that couples should not be cohabitating with each other because it says, man shall leave his mother and father to be joined. Now, this does not mean that you have to live at home until you're married. So all you maps can relax. I'm not suggesting your adult single kids come home. <laughs> but it does mean that you are not to create a new home until you are joined to your partner. God has designed blessing upon blessing to come upon a marriage. And as we've discussed, for marriage to be this symbolic example of many of God's principles of selfless love, sacrifice, caring for one another. So any time that we subjugate God's perfect plans, it's not like we're going to be struck by lightning, but we are playing with fire. For marriage is more than just a civil ceremony. It's a vow to each other before God. And then God imbues the marriage with blessings, emotional, spiritual, and physical. Now, the world really has us convinced that we need to test out our living arrangements with someone in order to know that it works before committing. Maybe we should also test out sleeping with our partner because what if there is a case of sexual incompatibility? However, do we really think that to be the case between people that are focused on loving God and then on each other? The only time that you ever see complete living and sexual incompatibility come out in a marriage is when one or both parties stop focusing on each other and start focusing on themselves. Marriage does not work with selfishness. It only works with selflessness. Because in marriage under God, the self is dead and it is replaced by the united couple. So in terms of physical and emotional contact, there's some pretty strong no's, but there's also a lot of gray that needs to be discussed and agreed to by each couple. There are many conscious decisions that a couple has to make between holding hands, kissing, cuddling on the couch. However, your conduct should be put before God by both of you, and lines should be set to ensure that either of you are not pushing yourself into temptation and that others in your family or church family are not offended. And in this, we follow the two greatest commandments. We love God, but then we love our neighbors. So we let the Holy Spirit tell us when our actions are too much, but we also listen to our peers and family about what they find comfortable because they're there to hold you accountable to your faith. This then leads into how do we maintain and reconcile sexual purity and the purity culture? Now, some of you may be asking what's the purity culture referred to in this question. 
And to go back a little further, since time began, pre-marriage purity culture has always been about encouraging young people to abstain from sex and sex-adjacent conduct, with particular focus on the maintenance of virginity for marriage, but again with a particular focus on women. But this question in particular, we, we kind of had to modify it to fit the slides and stuff, but this question in particular was referencing the purity culture movement that really hit a peak in evangelical churches and youth groups through the late 90s. There were a lot of hip books that came out at that time, like I Kissed, Dating Goodbye, True Love Waits, and this was a full physical abstinence movement, and even today it continues and you see churches that would put on purity balls, purity pledges, where young women, and occasionally they include young men, would pledge to their fathers, believing that true love waits, I make a commitment to God, myself, my family, those I date, and to my future mate to be sexually pure until the day I enter marriage. In many cases, the father then would give a silver ring that was meant to be a symbol until their wedding ring. Now, the intentions of this movement were absolutely excellent in encouraging young people to be intentional about dating. But the execution and the results of this movement would actually see a lot of criticism from both biblical and secular sources. Um, so to paraphrase an article um, by Rachel Joy Welcher, purity culture failed young people because it focused on the idolization of virginity with sex and marriage as a reward for chastity. It saw men as lust machines and women as responsible for the purity of men. And this is where it gets a really messy. So when secular culture framed the pursuit of sexual pleasure as the high, highest human good, purity culture said the same thing. Offering smoking hot, but married, sex as a reward for those that deferred. When secular society framed sex as a need or a right, purity culture said the same thing, at least to men, and taught a generation of women that they existed to fulfill this need. When secular society suggested that no one could live a meaningful life without sexual activity, purity culture said the same thing, but went the extra step of dooming countless unmarried celibate Christians to second-tier status. Now, other than some pretty obvious gender stereotypes there, what purity culture got wrong was it created rules and built fear to keep young people on the straight and narrow. It was like Israel's legalistic belief in the Mosaic laws. And there's no amount of rules, guidelines, and symbols that are going to give people the strength to resist and avoid sin. It, thus, it's God's grace and mercy that upholds us. And it's him that gives us the strength to resist temptation. So the takeaways of purity culture can be summarized in a couple general points here. Any and all physical contact is like a gateway drug to sex. Boys are visual and sexual, but girls don't care about sex. If you wait until you're married, God will reward you with mind-blowing sex and a magical wedding night. And once married, you will immediately be able to fully express yourself sexually without guilt and shame. Judging from your laughter, I think you already know where this is going. <laughs> but to knock these off one by one, not all physical contact is mean you're going to fall into bed with each other. 
despite what Hollywood says, there isn't a lot of truth to the idea that sex might happen accidentally. Clothes do not take themselves off, and bodies do not magically and effortlessly fit together. If you are committed to waiting till you're married to have sex, then there are many valid reasons to set boundaries on your physical relationship. But the fear of accidentally holding sex, having sex due to holding hands probably shouldn't be one of them. However, each couple does have to look to God and have that conversation with their companion on where that line of temptation is. And it will be different for each person. Is that conversation awkward? You bet. It's absolutely awkward. But it is very important. And if you're in a serious relationship, the other person will understand the care and the reason to have that conversation. Point number two, I think this type of teaching just doesn't stand up anymore. While there are gender differences between male and female, every person is sexual to a different level. And for many, sex is a strong hormone drive during their formative and even into their adult years. The stats, as sad as they are, are that there continues to be less and less of a gender divide between pornography use at all ages. And this is what the world has probably gotten correct a little bit before the traditional church. Sexual temptation is not a gender issue, it's a human issue. So this is about raising a generation, sorry. Yes, the Bible recognizes the visual nature of men and out of care for them, asks women to dress modestly. But this is also about raising a generation of men that are able to see a woman in a swimsuit and having the purity of mind to control your thoughts. The biblical emphasis in purity is on both genders. And it's on both genders to place their faith at the center and conduct themselves accordingly. Third point. Saving sex for marriage is not a guarantee that you will immediately have great sex or sex will be easy. I don't know if you heard all the older couples laughing when I read that out but that should be probably a pretty good sign. <laughs> All it guarantees is that the person that you fumble through it will be someone who is already committed to loving you forever. Even if two virgins come together on their wedding night, we are all broken people and we bring our baggage to the relationship. And every relationship is going to have issues to work through as two become one. And this leads right into our fourth point. Sexual purity must continue even into marriage, and it is critical for healthy marriages. Yes, while now married, you can have sex. It does not mean that you can let go all control and not have to maintain your purity and holiness before God. It does not also mean that your significant other is meant to be the solve-all for all your temptations and desires. Just because you have a married partner to be an outlet does not mean that you are free to then fill your mind with pornographic images, Reddit sex forums, and any of the other demands that are based on your lack of purity and control versus developing a loving physical relationship. Our purity matters at all points of our life, and that is our complete emotional and spiritual and physical purity. Corinthians, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband, 
A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourself to prayer. So rather than being a question of individual rights, Paul frames sex as a question of service and of giving to one's spouse. But there's more. While married sex may fulfill certain needs, those needs can also be left unfulfilled to our spiritual benefit. In other words, sex is good, but it is not the ultimate in human experience, and it should never take away or take priority over our relationship with Jesus. Sex is not the ultimate answer. Jesus is. In counterpoint, Paul actually felt bad for married people. In verse 7, <laughs> he basically says he feels bad because they had this other person, this massive distraction that was going to keep them from more time with God. So the lack of sex in his life was not a secondary existence. It wasn't a secondary choice, and his singleness was not a secondary status. Paul knew that singleness can be a tool that allows us to put God first in our lives without distraction. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh, a temptation that drove him to discomfort. It got to the point that Paul asked God for one of two options. The Lord could remove the thorn and Paul could get on with his life in ministry. Or two, the Lord could leave the thorn and Paul would be forever crippled and slowed in his life in ministry. And yet, as we see time and time again, the Lord takes our ultimatums under advice, and then he came with the third option. And that was, he's going to leave the thorn, but he would give Paul the grace to overcome. And in this, we see our own path to purity. We all struggle with temptation. We all feel overwhelmed. But yet God's grace is enough. Jesus has already paid the price for that temptation so that while you may struggle, those chains are broken and that sin cannot hold you in bondage. The Bible also recognizes that we are going to fail constantly. For each of the Mosaic purity laws, God immediately followed them by giving the process by which one got back into a pure state. But as we know from Jesus' teaching, while following rules can keep you pure in conduct, God desires something much greater than purity, and he asks for holiness. And that can only come by him. And since we've all sinned and fallen short, then our restoration lies only in him. The final lesson of purity culture was to instill a fear that once something was lost, it could never be regained. And this is a pharisaical mindset that judges and shames and looks down on those that have become impure. But this is where Jesus called out the Pharisees. And we must continue to remember that ours is a God of mercy and restoration. In the same way that God gave a process to re restore each pure state for the Israelites, so Jesus has the power to restore any part of us that is broken and suffering. Jesus healed wherever he went not to just showcase his power, but because he wanted to see each of us restored to a holy state before God. 
So how do we reconcile with purity culture? Well, I think the church can very much step up and create a much more holistic culture around dating. As a church, we need to focus not only on the do-nots, but raise our church body with relationship skill training to counterpart the traditional emphasis on virtue development. The answer lies not in telling ourselves and our children that they shouldn't kiss because it will lead to sex, but in developing their relationships with each other and with God, teaching them that a relationship with the Holy Spirit will guide them in these fraught situations when we are not able to, but also teaching them about our struggles and how we have been helped so that they know beyond the cliches of marriage that yes, things are worth waiting for, not because it will make sex better, but that it'll make their walk with Jesus better. God's purity call is to all people of any age and of any relationship status. Relationships and then marriage, they're a, they're a holy God-given creation that fulfill us on an amazing level and when functioning correctly are incredible examples on earth of God's kingdom principles. And this is why we need to be intentional in our dating, in our conduct pre-marriage, and also in our conduct for the remainder of our walk here on earth. Now, because we discussed three different questions here this morning, it's likely there's specific details or a situation that maybe you want to discuss further or get better clarification on. And so I want you to invite I want to invite you to bring all of those questions, particularly to Rich. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, Rich or myself, I would include John on that list, but obviously he's out on his vacation in Alberta, so feel free to call his cell phone. But, um, <laughs> but no, we're, we're here. And so yeah, if you have questions about this, um, then, then we want to be here to discuss it. But I also want to reach out with a prayer call because temptations and struggles with temptations are for all of us. And many times they feel beyond bearing. It might be sexual desire, but it might be something completely else. But all sins affect our purity, and they give us trials. So I'm going to ask you guys to stand, and if you're married or unmarried, but you feel overwhelmed with a temptation, we're going to take the time to pray for that because we really believe in this church that we support each other and that we always bring our common struggles before God. And I think it was really apt that we had communion this morning because it's a reminder of that price that Jesus paid for us to be holy. So let's not waste that gift, but give to him that which he already bought and paid for. Part of the prayer I want to pray this morning is one of the lines from, from the song we were singing this morning and it just really touched on me. It says, Can you feel it? Heaven is reaching. Oh, can you hear it? Our God is speaking. Can you see it? He has got your healing. Oh, just receive it. Receive that freedom. Heaven is reaching. God is speaking to you. He's already got your healing. So you just need to receive that freedom. So Lord, this morning, I myself stand convicted before you of the temptations and the struggles that I've had in my life. 
And Lord, we just bring these temptations before you, Lord, temptations that have kept us from a state of being with you. And Lord, we're so thankful that you brought your son, that we, as much as we try to follow the laws, when we fail, we can reach to him for forgiveness, for mercy, for grace. Lord, we thank you that in these temptations, you have already broken the chains that bind them to us, Lord, and that we just need to walk out of the prison, Lord, that we need to have the faith that you have given us the strength to step through these things. And Lord, though we pray many, many times for you to remove these things from us, to take away these temptations because we fear when we fall into them, Lord, we also know that you have grace enough. Lord, your strength and your grace is enough. And so, Lord, we just lift these things up to you this morning. We place them in your hands. And Lord, we just ask that you would guide our conduct, Lord, that your your spirit would be the voice in our ears, Lord, that when we get into situations, Lord, that your voice would be the one we hear, not the voices that tell us it'll be fun, just do it, not the voices that, that speak out of our flesh, Lord, but the one that comes out of our spirit and the one that seeks eternity with you, Lord. Lord, just help us to, to set you above the things of this earth, Lord, to make you the priority in our lives. And so, Lord, we just lift these things up to you this morning and give this all to you. Amen. Thank you, God, for your presence. Heaven is indeed reaching out to us. I want you to know that there's no mistake, no sin that you've ever done that is greater than God's forgiveness. Never allow the devil to lie to you and say that you've committed something so bad that God could never be restored to you. That would be to put your sin above the cross. There's no sin ever committed by man that's a blood above the blood of Jesus Christ. Can we say amen to that? The Bible prophesies that in the last days, a sin, a flood of sin will come in. But God raises up a standard. A standard of what? A standard of his grace. A standard of forgiveness. A standard of healing. The way to clean out a dirty river is not to avoid that river, but it's to cleanse it with fresh water. And that's what God does. He comes to flood the culture with healing, with the river of God. I'm so grateful for this message that Alex shared. It was just crisp and clean and definitional. You know, we need definition sometimes. Culture says this is what purity is. This is what dating should be. This is what marriage should be like. This is what should happen in the bedroom. And we just get all confused. And we need that 2020 definition of what is it that the gospel is saying. And what's so just awesome about a message like this is it shows how practical the gospel is. And I think that one key that maybe was hidden in this message is Alex was really touching on the mindset that we need to have as Christians. And out of that mindset flows the practical rules. But if we just focus on the rules and we don't have the understanding of the mindset, then it just becomes legalism. But when we understand the perspective of God and why he's given us certain boundaries, then it frees us and allows us to see the love of God and how he's trying to protect us. So, God, we thank you for what you're doing in our midst. 
We thank you for your great grace. We thank you that there is no sin, God, that's above the cross and that we can all receive we can all receive forgiveness. That you're breaking chains of shame even right now. There's some of you that are thinking and just tumbling in your mind right now, can God actually forgive me of that? That persistent sin that I've committed over and over, the answer is yes. God can release you and break the chains of those shame. Spirit of grace, do it right now. Right now. Be released. Be refreshed and be new in him. And let the grace come to live in a new way, not by our own strength, but by your spirit. We thank you, God, that we can be together this morning as a spiritual family. And we give you praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a wonderful week.